Anxiety is the feeling of fear and worry, typically associated with situations that have a high level of uncertainty. Anxiety exists on a very, very, very wide spectrum. First, to learn how to turn the volume down on our anxiety that has so many different triggers. Come for the empathy, stay for the dopamine. It really is an antidote to your own anxiety. Help somebody else out, and that is my favorite superpower. Read different books, try different meditations, try different forms of exercise or activity or social interaction. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so excited about today's episode. It is a reframe that I think is so important. If you're like me, you probably get stressed and then you get stressed about being stressed, which is just not helping anything. So I am so grateful for the work of Wendy Suzuki and her book, Good Anxiety, because maybe anxiety can be okay. So we dive deep into so many things in today's episode, the role of anxiety in our life, the role of mindset, creativity, flow, social anxiety in particular, things I love like empathy and mirror neurons, how to cope, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. These show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash good anxiety. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then find my Instagram, the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MelanieAvalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text AvalonX to 877-861-8318. That's AvalonX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Wendy Suzuki. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is about a topic that I think is just so important that affects so many people, affects me personally, and my background on my thoughts and experiences surrounding this topic is I historically have had my own bout of dealing with stress and anxiety and things like that. And for the longest time, I think the worst part of it, honestly, is not so much that I would be anxious or stressed, but I would get anxious about being anxious or I'd be stressed about being stressed because I thought it was a bad thing. And actually quite a while ago, like a a very long time ago, I read um, Kelly McGonigal's The Upside of Stress. And that was the first time that I had a major reframe that, oh, maybe, maybe... (laughs) maybe stress isn't as bad as I thought, or maybe I can have a reframe here. That was actually the first audio book on Audible that I actually listened to twice, which I had never done up until that point. So since then, I was very much intrigued with this concept of reframing stress and anxiety and was hoping to do a deeper dive into it and just learn more about that. So when I learned about Dr. Wendy Suzuki's book, Good Anxiety, I mean, just seeing the title, I was like, yes, this is what I want to read. And then, because I don't remember exactly how we connected right now. I think maybe it was through an agent that I'd worked with before. But in any case, so I was an immediate yes, but I hadn't read the book yet. And then I read the book and it was everything I was hoping it would be and more. It was the deepest dive into the brain, what's actually happening with stress and anxiety, how we can reframe it, practical tools. Just It was literally the perfect book to read. I've been looking forward to this interview for so, so long. Dr. Wendy Suzuki is 
a professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University. She's actually, this is super cool. She was named one of the top 10 women changing the way we see the world by good housekeeping. She's been in the Wall Street Journal and Shape and Health and her TED Talk has more than 31 million views. And she's also the author of Healthy Brain, Healthy Life. But in any case, here we are today to talk about all of this. So Dr. Suzuki, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. I've been looking forward to this for so long. Also, I wanted to say I love it when the authors read the books themselves on Audible. So that that was really nice to hear. Did you enjoy doing that? I did. Good Anxiety was the second book I read. The first book, you know, I, I was so excited to do it, but very daunted because they said I could do it in four days. I'm like, you don't know what you're doing. It's going to take me a week, you know, more, two weeks to do this. They were like on the dot. They could tell from first time reader, they knew exactly how long. And it was so satisfying to read the book that I never intended to read, but, but was my story. So I also had that same feeling reading Good Anxiety. I just feel like it makes it more personal and I feel so much more connected to the author. So I love it when that happens. So thank you for that. In your book, you do talk a lot about your personal story and your experience with anxiety and reframing and all of that. So could you introduce listeners a little bit to your own personal journey with anxiety and what made you so interested in all of this? Sure. So I am a professor of neuroscience and psychology. As you said in the introduction, I was actually just recently named Dean of the College of Arts and Science at New York University. I started in September. So big new position. Congrats. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yes. Yes. It's been, it's been so much fun to learn this new job, this new leadership position. But my biggest experience with anxiety really came during the tenure process when I was getting tenure. So it takes six years to get tenure. And for those of you who are not familiar, familiar with the American tenure process, they give you six years to make a big splash in science. And if you are a big enough splash, then they give you tenure and they can't fire you anymore. And if you don't, then they fire you and you have to kind of leave with your head hanging. It's the scariest thing after spending 15 years, you know, getting to that point of 15 years of, of education. And so, you know, no big deal. It's like, well, I'll just work on this task of, of trying to make a big splash and really that experience just taught me how not to handle a stressful experience, which was my, my very simple-minded strategy was put your head down and just work. You only have one thing to do, get yourself tenure. You have six years. And so all you're going to do is work. I stressed myself out. My anxiety was through the roof. I had no social life because I was only working. I gained 25 pounds because I ate so much takeout because I wasn't, you know, enjoying something that I love to do, which is cooking for myself. And then I realized that, wait a second, I, I'm, I'm not enjoying my science as much. I'm not enjoying, I'm certainly not enjoying my life. I have no life anymore. That's when I decided that I needed to do something. So I went on vacation and I went on vacation by myself because I had no friends. I went on one of those river rafting trips where you can just join and go to some exotic destination. And I went to Peru 
to the Cotahuasi River in deepest, darkest Peru. And it was beautiful and I was outside and and all that physicality was exactly what I needed, kind of an antidote to, to midtown Manhattan and downtown Manhattan where I lived and worked. I came back thinking, oh, I need more of that in my life. And I actually, I, I, I'm 25 pounds heavier than I usually am. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm just going to kind of keep going with the exercise. And so I did. That was the first really good decision I made on that <laughs> in that 10-year process. I started to feel so much better. My mood was better. My attitude was better. It was just a, a life and attitude adjustment. That was actually not only the start of my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, which told the story of me changing my whole research program from memory, which is the topic that I won tenure on, to the effects of exercise on the brain, which is the topic I switched my research towards. But at the heart of that was this overcoming that that really, really stressful part of my life and learning so much about how physical activity and mindset can change the way you live your life. Then I started to notice not just not me going through tenure, I'd gotten tenure, but all my students at NYU, this was before the pandemic, and how their levels of anxiety were going up and up and up and, and the fear and the anxiety around finals and what they were going to do after college and how they're going to pay for college. All of these things I, I saw kind of heightening to a level that I had never seen before. I realized it wasn't just them. My anxiety level had had gone up, not to the level of tenure, but just going up, living living was getting harder and dealing with all the social media and news cycles and bad news around the world. And that's when I really wanted to dive in, not just about exercise, though, as you know, I talk a lot about the, the transformational effects of exercise on mood and brain and cognitive and mental health, but all of the other ways we can deal with anxiety and really reframing anxiety and asking, can anxiety be good for us? Is it is it always a negative thing? And what I found is absolutely not. It can be beneficial. It is there to actually protect us. And that's that was the start of the book. I love that so much. I did not know that about tenure. This My mind is blown. Okay, wait, I have a quick question. So is tenure, is it optional? Well, you can get hired in a tenure track position or a non-tenure track position. So if you start out in a non-tenure track position, then no, you don't have to do that. But but salary levels, as you can imagine, is is are are lower and there's not as many leadership opportunities. I always wanted to be that tenure tracked professor with a big research lab, a research program. All of my role models were that. And that's what I wanted. But I knew that it came with this six-year tenure clock. So you, uh, again, either sink or swim. And if you don't make it, you, you're you fired. You, you leave the university and find a different job. And then they can't fire you if you... Are there exceptions to that? Yeah. If you murder somebody, yes, they can fire you. But they can't fire you for... Like what reason? Lack of, you know, you, you can get tenure and decide, okay, I'm not doing anything anymore. And they can't fire you. I mean, they could take away your your perks and things like that. So so that very, very rarely happens. But, but in this day and age, to have a job that 
you cannot get tired for is rare. I mean, it's always been rare, but in this day and age, it is even more coveted and, and it takes a long time to get there, but that is the beauty of tenure. Wow. That actually makes me think of, this is a super random question, but it's related to the topic. So you had so much stress and anxiety leading up to that, that position and then getting tenure that would presumably bring with it a feeling of safety or, you know, a lot of those things that you were nervous about might've been gone in that new position. Do you find that people, especially who haven't really thought about addressing their fear and anxiety, like, are there certain types of people where even if the situations and environment changes, they're still going to be like, they're going to find something else to be anxious about. Like they would get the tenure and they'll still be anxious. Or do people in general really react to their new circumstances and environments and adapt? Like how much does anxiety change in most people throughout their lives? You know, I think that in this cohort that is tenure track research scientists like I am, one has to be driven to, to do this work. Science is very, very competitive. And so once you get tenured, then it's, you know, what's your next paper? What journal is it going to be in? You know, how many grants do you have? There's always something to be worried about. The thing that happened with me is that I remember when I, I got one really big, big paper that was the core of my tenure. It's called a packet that you submit. And it was in a really high profile journal. And I remember the morning that it it was accepted. I got an email and I started crying. I, I knew that when this paper got accepted, that I would get tenure. And it was just such, such a relief. And so there was just joy and, and release. And, it, you know, it felt like, oh, all this work was worth it. But then <laughs> after it settled in, it's like, is this all there is? I, I still have to worry about the next grant and, and, you know, where the next paper is going to be accepted. And, and part of me was like, where's the ticker take parade? You know, when I, when I get tenure, it's like, I, I work so hard. It doesn't feel quite as grand, grand as I thought it would be. And that's when it started to become real that I had let so many things go in my personal life. I didn't have a strong personal life. I had a few friends, good friends, of course, that I, that I continue to have, but I didn't particularly pay that great attention to them because I was so focused on, on, on getting tenure. It was a realization of the imbalance that I had in my life. And, and I say that now with hindsight. I, I, it took a while to figure out what was going on. I used executive coaching to try and get my career and try and figure out why was I not feeling as exalted as I thought I would after, after tenure? What, what do, what do I really want to do now that I have this tenure? It's not, it's actually not the end all and be all, even though it's, you know, it's an amazing thing to have. What is next? And so that was a long, a long process that I also describe it in that first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, and, and finding those things that were meaningful and kind of getting back into the physicality of my body. You know, sometimes I, I feel like a walking brain. All I do is use my brain to think about the brain and study the brain. That's like, <laughs> and so that's part of the reason why physicality and bringing more movement and, and music and classes and dance classes into my life was so satisfying for me. And it turns out that meditation and, and 
being with yourself, being able to listen to those voices deep down that I was suppressing when they said, you're unhappy, Wendy. Even though you, you know, you're in this tenor track position and you've got this paper in, you're, you're actually unhappy. Those are hard things to listen to. And for me, early on, it was easier just to suppress them. And so with the meditation, I learned to listen to them and accept them and do things about them that I wasn't, if I wasn't happy with where, where those voices were telling me I was in my life. Well, that ties into a huge question I have, which is about, you know, addressing these things through bottom-up versus top-down approaches. But before that, I guess it'd be helpful uh, to step back a little bit because we're using the word like stress and anxiety a lot. So what is stress, stress and anxiety exactly? I know there are a lot of different diagnoses and, you know, definitions. And in your book, you talk about like, you know, generalized versions versus, you know, specific versions. And then also after that, you know, what is the evolutionary purpose? Like, why are we even experiencing this? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic place to start. So my simple starter definition of anxiety is that anxiety is the feeling of fear and worry, typically associated with uncertain situations, situations that have a high level of uncertainty. So for my last story, tenure, Am I going to get tenure or not? That very, very uncertain. Are we going to get through a global pandemic? Also, the world thrown into a hugely anxiety-provoking, uncertain situation, which is why anxiety levels worldwide increased significantly during, during the last three and a half years of the pandemic. So that's the simple definition. And so anxiety and the second follow-up to that simple definition is a very, very important point, which is anxiety is a normal human emotion. I, I like to really, really emphasize that because people have tended to think about anxiety as, as a disease and, and it's a stigma. Everybody has anxiety. Every single person has anxiety. If somebody tells you they're going to give you a pill or give you a program to get rid of your anxiety completely, they're absolutely wrong. It is part of our normal human emotion. You're always going to have anxiety. And the reason you're always going to have anxiety is that it is protective. And so this is where I'll link it to stress in a, in a moment. But evolutionarily, anxiety, the emotion of anxiety and that underlying physiological stress response that comes with it, when you have the feeling of anxiety, it, it actually activates your stress response. What is it for? evolutionarily, it is for protection. And the easiest way to understand this is to think back onto a female 2.5 million years ago with a newborn baby walking around trying to gather food. Again, 2.5 million years ago, one of our ancestors, a female with a baby, and she hears the crack of a twig. Now, that, that could signal a, a predator, one of the major dangers that, that people 2.5 million years ago had. That crack of the twig could activate anxiety, and that would release her stress response. That stress response, also known as the fight or flight response, we've all felt it before. It is that increase in heart rate, that increase of respiration rate, your palms are sweaty. What's happening internally, physiologically, is your blood is rushing away from your digestive and reproductive organs. 
to your muscles. Basically, your whole body is getting you ready to either fight or run away, hence the term fight or flight response. And that saved her and that saved us as a species because she was, she either ran away from that animal or fought it off and, and, and lived to live another day. And so that helped get us to where we are today. Unfortunately, very few people think that their anxiety is protective, feels protective at all. That is because our general anxiety level is simply too high. The volume is turned up way too high. When it's way too high, it loses its protective element and, and it starts to just feel like that rock, that big rock that you're carrying around around your neck. And so that is where the book starts. Step one of getting to what I call good anxiety, which is simply put protective anxiety, that protective anxiety that we use is first to learn how to turn the volume down on our anxiety that has so many different triggers these days. The news cycle, social media feeds, a conversation that might involve either politics or the environment. All these things can be triggers for anxiety. The economic situation that we're in today, all of these things. And so there's so many more triggers. It's not life or death like the crack of the twig anymore, but they're coming in fast and furious. But the, the, uh, the big kind of promise of this book is that we know a lot more about how to use the neuroscience and neuro and psychology and physiology to turn down the volume of our anxiety. And that's my step one of getting to good anxiety. Learn how to turn the volume down. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So the actual anxiety process that you talked about, like the physical 
chemical neurotransmitters that are released and our body's reaction to it, the responsibility for that, where does that lie in the brain? And then the second part to it is, is it the language part of our brain, like the prefrontal cortex that is attributing that narrative to the anxiety? So like for animals, do they have the exact same experience, but they don't call it in their head a negative thing? So it's hard to compare. They don't have language at all. It is kind of reactive situations. Baby animals that have not learned anything will be afraid of spiders and snake-like things that has evolved to stimulate fear. And so animals can feel fear and respond to fear. And what? how is fear responded to? Well, with the same fight or flight response. And I'll highlight one brain area and one part of the nervous system in this response. The fear response and and anxiety uh, is also included in that. The brain area that, that responds to that, that detects it, you might say, is the amygdala, which is an almond shaped brain structure in the deep dark towards the middle part of the temporal lobe, which is near your ear. And the amygdala will then activate all those things that I was talking about, heart rate, increase respiration, increase the sh- shift of the blood through another brain area called the hypothalamus that controls something called the sympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system. The other name of the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight part of our nervous system. There's a whole set of cells and nerves that all they do is respond to stressful, fearful situations in, in all those ways that I that, that I talked about. It's complicated. The, the nervous system is very complicated, but it's detection by the amygdala that can activate this fight or flight system through the hypothalamus and the sympathetic nervous system. Like with your conversation in your book and like thinking about things in this new mindset, we're realizing, like you said, that, you know, anxiety is not and the fear response is not necessarily bad and we can use it to our advantage and it can be empowering. Like, will we always as a species have to go through this practice to relearn this? Or do you think we would naturally evolve to not have that negative response to it? Well, yeah, that's a great question. My answer is we must always have the negative, at least partially negative response. It is a warning system. If it was warm and then be warning anymore. It can't be happy faces and, and popcorn. If it is warning you against, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it came up in my mind. But if it's warning something dangerous or something that you should pay attention to immediately, that is why that fear response is there. That is why that uncomfortable feeling is there. Something is on the line. You need to pay attention to it. That is the body's answer to saying, hey, pay attention. And that part works very well. So no, that's not going to go away. Why do some people, because you talk in the book about how some people seem to be more resilient and adaptive and automatically, you know, use stress to advantage and others, they don't. (laughs) Like it's a downward spiral. Why do you think that is? So I think that 
these behaviors can be learned. Look around. You will see so many different kinds of reactive people, including reactive parents, those hyper reactive, vigilant people that, you know, get, get so upset if something dangerous or potentially dangerous can happen to their kids versus other more laid back personalities and or parents where it's not such a big deal and one can try different things and, and maybe one can fail. Sometimes it's not that big of a deal. I think a lot of it has to do with something that I talk a lot about in Good Anxiety, which is mindset and, and mindset shifting and teaching yourself those mindsets that can be most adaptable to this world that we're living in today, which is full of stressors. I mean, there's no getting around it. It's, it. It is full of stressors. So that's why it's even more important to realize the power of mindset and that these responses can be learned. And can I actually say one really important thing? I, I don't want to minimize the fact that people, that, that anxiety, even though basic anxiety is a normal human emotion, I want to also emphasize that anxiety exists on a very, very, very wide spectrum. I would say 80% of it is like normal, normal anxiety. But then at the highest levels, that's where you get into clinical anxiety. That is high, high enough levels of anxiety that it really disrupts your normal life. You can't work. You don't have uh, normal relationships. You, you must see a medical professional. That is a different animal. It's, it's on the spectrum of, of anxiety, but it, it becomes debilitating. So I'm not saying that you should read this book and everybody's anxiety will be addressed, even though all the approaches that I describe certainly can be used by people with clinical anxiety. It, it just should not be the only thing that you use to try and address that, that system. So I want to acknowledge that it really exists on a really, really wide spectrum and, and maybe uh, medical intervention psychologists, psychiatrists can be very, very useful at the highest levels. And, and actually to that point, how does anxiety relate to depression? Yeah. So often people with depression have anxiety and people with anxiety have depression. There are different patterns behavioral patterns, but they tend to co-occur. Both tend to be evoked by very, very stressful situations, like the ones that you described in your life, like the one I described in my life. But but they are separate syndromes and, and there are there are different brain areas that are that are implicated, different but overlapping brain areas that are implicated in both. So one of the things you talk about in the book are the different pathways involved in anxiety. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and like what's going on, like the reward pathway and creativity and, and resilience. What, what do you mean by these different pathways of anxiety? Creativity is, it's not really a pathway of anxiety. It is, it's one of the superpowers of, of anxiety that I talk about, which is part of how one can take advantage of this emotion that we all have of anxiety. It relates to this idea of mindset and reframing because mindset, another way to think about mindset is a form of creativity. How many way, different ways can I look at this situation? One of the most common anxiety-provoking situations is public speaking. 
So one way to look at public speaking is I'm going to be out there all alone, naked. There's nothing to help me. And I'm going to humiliate myself because I'm going to forget all my words and I'm not going to know what to say and everybody's going to hate me. That is one way to think about public speaking. Another way to think about public speaking is it is an opportunity for me to show myself. It is an opportunity for me to share what I know very well with more than, you know, a handful of people because I've practiced really well and, and I, I know my stuff better than anybody in the audience. This is an opportunity. It's still scary. It's still a little bit scary. It's always a little scary, but it is an opportunity to share. And how many different scenarios can you come up with? And so once you come up with those scenarios, which one are you going to take to heart? Which one are you going to use? It takes some practice and it takes preparation, but there are absolutely many different ways to address many of these most common forms of anxiety, difficult conversations. You're going to have interviews that you're going to have. What are all the different ways that you can approach these? And so, so what I talk about are part of the brain areas that we know are involved in creativity and how creativity works kind of psychologically, but also the, the, the brain circuits that are involved. I loved that whole section of the book because I had never, with creativity, you don't really like, or I don't really like think about it intensely. I just thought, oh, you know, you're creative or you're not. I hadn't really thought about it as like its evolutionary purpose and traits involved and are there creative personalities or not? Like, are there creative personalities or not? I mean, uh, in the popular literature, there's always been this idea, are you a creative or you're not creative? And, you know, I am a student of brain plasticity. And I say that while I might not be the best singer in the world, I can learn I can learn musicality, I can learn the exercises, I can learn sight reading music. And if I practice, I will be better in three months than I am today. And so I think everybody has the capacity to learn new things and, and look at the world in the way that they choose. So that is where, that, that, that is really at the core of, of both my books and, and what I try and how I, I try and live my life. Didn't you do a singing class or a, um, a cabaret? I did. I did. That was one of the most scary things. I mean, I give thousands, at least hundreds of talks, but singing in front of that three-piece band solo, that was, that was very scary. No, that stuck with me. I was like, that's impressive. You know, because you talk about how, you know, you're not like a singer. That's not your quote thing. I don't know. I've always found that to be a terrifying concept. So <laughs> super, super amazing. So some of the other superpowers, you talk a lot about a concept I'm fascinated with, which is flow. So what is flow? Yeah. So flow is a psychological concept that was described by a Czechoslovakian neuroscientist named Csikszentmihalyi. His, his last name is Csikszentmihalyi. And its classical definition is flow doesn't come all the time. It comes when you're performing at a very high level, you've practiced something. I always think of Yo-Yo Ma because I'm a, I'm a student of the cello, a, a very beginner student of the cello. And 
I think that not every single time he plays his favorite piece, he's in flow, but certain moments, it's this the perfect audience, the perfect situation. And it's that feeling when time slows down and, and you have a heightened awareness of, of the beauty of, of this process that you're involved in. That is when you're in flow. The other thing that we know about flow is that if you have anxiety, flow disappears. You cannot get into flow if you have anxiety. You have to be free. You have to be open. You have to be ready to play the best that you've ever played in your whole life. And so I I, I really wanted to talk about this concept in this book on anxiety. And I absolutely didn't want to say, sorry, with anxiety, no flow. And so as I can't remember what I, I talk about this explicitly in the book, but this is exactly what happened. I was really struggling with what am I going to say about flow? There's a chapter on flow. I can talk about what flow is, who discovered it, what the definition is, but what am I going to say in the book? What is my angle going to be? And so I was stuck, uh, completely, you know, just stuck in in this idea. And so I, I decided to go to yoga class. So I go to yoga class and I feeling good and, and I'm doing, I'm flowing in yoga, you know, kind of yoga flow, not, not perhaps chick set me high in flow, but I'm flowing in yoga and I'm doing my up dogs and my down dogs. And I flip the dog and I do all the, all the things and I'm feeling really good. And then finally I get to the end of class and we go into Shavasana corpse pose. And I think, you know what? I'm flowing in Shavasana. I don't care what the classic definition is. Maybe it's not classic flow. Maybe this is micro flow. But boy, I feel good. I am laying on the ground so well. There's nobody that's laying on the ground better than me. I was in a playful mood. And so I come home and I'm like, why do I have to be so, you know, strict about my definition of flow? I'm going to redefine flow. I'm going to call it micro flow. And, and my best example is my two minutes in Shavasana. I was flowing in Shavasana and I started thinking about it and I started paying attention to all the other moments. Do I have other moments of microflow in my life? Yes, I do. I make a smoothie in the morning for myself and, and I love making it because I, I created this recipe myself with taking hints from the internet and I kind of created it and I found the proportions that I loved. And so I make it every morning and I drink it. And I'm like, yeah, this is a moment of micro flow. I love, I f- it feels so healthy. I feel like I'm starting my day off right. I do a meditation in the morning, a tea meditation. I love that. I feel like that is absolutely a moment of flow. Even great conversations during the day, moments of flow. And so I thought, okay, I like this idea of micro flow, just appreciating all the smaller moments of flow. It's kind of a different category of flow. But then everybody can have that. That's not special or superpower of anybody with anxiety. Until I remembered this talk, it was the very first science presentation that I ever gave as a graduate student. And it was a big deal. We had to go to this big center for learning and memory at UC Irvine. And I was in the graduate student presentation group and I practiced and and there were all the famous neuroscientists that studied memory that were there and I wanted to do really well. And so I remember it was my session and waiting to go on and the guy, and then there was only one more person before me. So the guy goes, he was awful. 
He didn't know his data. He, he, like, he didn't know what his slide said. He didn't know what to say. It was just painful, painful to watch him. Everybody, you could tell everybody's like, just end, just end. You don't know what you're talking about. You didn't practice enough. But then I got to go and I had practiced. But because he was so bad, I looked even better. I got so many compliments and it shifted my mindset to this day. Because of that talk, I think of myself as an excellent speaker. I, but it was partially because the poor guy before me was so bad that my good talk was elevated to superior. And that's called the negative contrast effect. And then I realized that that is how I want to describe microflow. Flow, that shavasana felt so good to me and flowy because I had anxiety about what the heck I was going to write in this chapter about flow. And so it kind of elevated the, the highs are higher because, because we all have everyday anxiety and, and we all go through anxiety. So in that sense, our appreciation of these moments of microflow are even heightened because we have everyday anxiety. We have those uncomfortable conversations and we have those worries about whether our, our presentation or our talk or our report is good enough. And so it really becomes playing the good off the bad, but appreciating the good even more. And that, that is what became my superpower of flow that comes from our own forms of anxiety. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? 
What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Well, you know what's really interesting about that? I first learned about flow when I read a book called The Rise of Superman. It's all about flow. Well, the tagline is Decoding the Science of Ultimate Human Performance. That's where I first learned about it. And it was at the time that I was a server in LA at a fine dining steakhouse in Beverly Hills, which was very stressful. (laughs) What's really interesting is, so that's when I was reading about flow. And that's when I first started realizing when I would enter flow, which was when I was serving and waiting tables. And it was during really high stress moments, but I would get into this like flow state. And it's funny, one of my, my fellow servers and I, we would like check in and be like, are you in flow? Like, yeah, you're in, we're in flow. I mean, it was a very high perceivably anxiety moment or stressful moment at least, but I found that it fit all the characteristics of flow, which was that you have the skill set to be doing it, but then there's still, you know, effort involved and there's still, you can't do it perfectly effortlessly. Like there's still a challenge aspect to it. Like it it really did create that state. So I I feel like stress and anxiety could definitely play a role if you're like in the right zone. Yeah, absolutely. I have that same feeling when I give talks. If I'm not worried, at least a little bit before the talk, it's never my best talk. My best talks have been kind of high stakes talk, lot, lots of people in the audience or really important people that I want to, I want to do really well for. That fear always gets me into a state of flow, giving my talk. And just in the moment, the words come, the stories come, the jokes come, but, but I needed that, that boost of anxiety, that stress to to push me there because if I was in the kind of Sunday Netflix watching mode I would never give a good talk like when I first started the job I would not have been able to be in this flow state like when I was still learning all the skills I needed and then in retrospect I feel like I could characterize states as being in flow if there was a change in time perception like if it you know I I just lost track of time so yeah, I'm just I'm fascinated by all of this. Another one of the topics that you talk about, oh, oh, okay. So I'm really, really interested in stress and anxiety's role in social relations. So like what part of our brain is, or parts of our brain are involved in social interactions? And, you know, people talk about social anxiety and experience that all the time. Yeah, just what are your thoughts on social anxiety and social reactions? 
Yeah. So there are so many different parts of the brain that are involved in social social reactions. These whole circuits, I mean, we have to go beyond part of the brain. There, there are social circuits of brain areas that are so highly evolved in humans because we and other primates are social animals. There's the parts of the brain that perceive faces and facial expressions. And, and when those parts of the brain are damaged for whatever reason, you get prosopagnosia, which is the inability to recognize faces. Very, very difficult for social interactions if you can't you know, recognize individual faces. So there are neurotransmitters that are associated with social interactions uh, of many different kinds. Oxytocin is a famous one that people talk about a lot for mother-child interactions, but also friendship kinds of inter interactions involve oxytocin. So many different neurotransmitter systems and, and brain areas. Yet at the same time, there can be a lot of anxiety around social interactions. And I experienced that myself personally, as somebody who grew up very, very shy when I was a young, when I was a young child and spent many years definitely on the introverted shy end of the spectrum before I decided to be an academic and I had to lecture to people and, and, but then kind of changed and, and not nearly as shy as I used to be, but I still have those same fears that come up like, I hope they don't think I'm stupid or I hope I don't say the wrong thing or I hope I answer the question right in, in, you know, in front of people that I don't know. Everybody has those kinds of interactions. And, and it's this double-edged sword of because social connections are so important to us generally as a species, then being rejected from those social, social interactions and social acceptance can be you're really, really devastating and, and fear evoking. It's like you're, you know, you're anxious about being anxious. You're, you're anxious about, you know, the, the, just the, the devastation that could come from not being accepted in your social circles. So, so, I mean, I don't have an end all and be all solution for social anxiety, but here's something that helped me. And it's just the realization of what I just said, that part of why I get nervous and scared and anxious is because those social connections are so valuable to me. They are. And so I, I, I kind of have anticipatory anxiety. You know, what if this person doesn't become a really good friend? And, and I think that I, I might want to be really good friends with this person. And so it, it, it puts it in a different light for me that, that I like the idea that I'm a person that truly values strong social connections. And I just have to tell myself that, that, yeah, that could be a great thing, but it might not work out with this person. There are many people in my life that I do have strong social connections for, and it just kind of motivates me to continue to strengthen those and appreciate and, and kind of recognize all the great things that that exist in my current social interactions and, and not be as afraid of failure for current social interactions, which was part of the core of my fear in, in so social situations for many, many years. 
the book I'm reading right now actually is called Status Games. It's by Dr. Loretta Bruning. It's been really interesting because she talks all about how we judge this idea of wanting to be liked or, you know, wanting status or wanting relations and hierarchies in society. But she talks about how like that's completely just an evolutionary drive and it's in all species because what it results in, like you're mentioning, is, you know, fears and insecurities about not forming these different social connections and everything. But I think there's, I find it really interesting because I feel like there's a level of of judgment to it where we judge our interactions with others and we judge wanting to have certain interactions with others as like a good or a bad thing from a morality perspective. But she just makes the case that like evolutionarily, like we seek status. Like it's kind of like we seek food, sex. It's like with those levels. So I, I found that really, really interesting and like a nice reframe. How about empathy? I'm so fascinated by empathy. Are people naturally more empathetic than others? And why might that be? I'm very fascinated by people that seem to have no empathy, for example. Does everybody have mirror neurons? Are like psychopaths, do they not have that? Like, like, what's going on? I don't think we know the answer to that last question. Do psychopaths have mirror neurons? And and I, I'm sure that the empathy circuits, again, another circuit, kind of like the circuit for social interactions in the brain, goes well beyond these these mirror neurons and includes, you know, neurotransmitter systems. I'm sure it includes oxytocin. It includes reward systems, those circuits in the brain that get activated when something rewarding to you happens. Studies have shown that that piece of music that gives you the shivers every single time you listen to it will activate reward systems, for example. And also, it's the act of compassion. So empathy is a feeling. So you can feel the situation of somebody else. But in this study that was published, it was shown that people given the opportunity to be compassionate to others, giving them a tax rebate, something very tangible, you know, you get more money back on your taxes. That is uh, very delightful. And they're not getting the money back. They're letting somebody else get that tax rebate back. That activates their reward system. So I thought about this a lot when I was thinking about the benefits, the gifts, or the superpowers that come from anxiety. Because I I told myself that if I'm going to tell people that anxiety is good, I can't simply give a book that just tells you how to get rid of it. That's not good. (laughs) You you better give some benefit, right? Right or else you, you can't call it good, good anxiety. And so the gift or superpower that is my favorite that comes from your own particular form of anxiety is the superpower of empathy. And here's how it works. So this came to me as I was thinking about my own historic anxiety. And so, as I mentioned, I was a very shy young girl, always was interested in in academics and learning and class, but always had this fear of speaking up, asking the question, because of course I thought I would say something stupid and then I would look stupid in front of the whole class. This is a very common fear. But it stuck with me for years and years and years that it's a form of social anxiety. I didn't want to look stupid in front of my social group of, of classmates. But then one day I found myself teaching because I went into academia and I was a graduate student and I had to teach. And I realized that I didn't realize it that first day that I taught, but later I realized that 
because I had spent so many years feeling fear about asking questions, that I naturally tried to come early, stay late, and answer everybody's questions because I knew there were 10 times as many people that had questions than the ones that actually raised their hands, that were brave enough to raise their hands. And that became my own superpower of teaching because I had the empathy to feel for all those people that I had the same anxiety with. And so that's my superpower and how I used it. But it works for everybody based on their own anxiety. So here's how it works. Think about either your most common or your oldest form of anxiety. You know what it feels like, you know what it looks like, you know those situations where it comes up. And all you have to do is turn that awareness outside. And when you see somebody else having that same form of anxiety, just give them a kind word, a smile, answer their question as I did to the students in, in my classroom. And, and that gives you, I argue in the book, a wonderful superpower of empathy, that the action is compassion. That's really based on your own form of anxiety. And what is that going to do? It is going to release those dopamine neurotransmitters, going to activate your reward system. I like to say, you know, come for the empathy, stay for the dopamine. It's this it really is an antidote to your own anxiety. Help somebody else out in this kind of anxiety-specific way. And that is my favorite superpower that comes from your own form of anxiety. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine, the polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I love that. That is right up my alley. This also sounds similar to the concepts of like a loving kindness meditation. I was reading about that last night as well. I have a big question about addressing anxiety and well, two big questions. One I mentioned earlier, so circling back to that, the bottom up versus top down approaches. Is one more effective for certain people than the other? I think it's interesting because like some people are like all about the breathing and the meditation and all that. And then some people are more about the cognitive, you know, reappraising it. So what are your thoughts on those two approaches? 
And like in animals, do they, well, I guess animals can't really reframe. No, not really. <laughs> well, I mean, part of the, part of behavioral training is actually, is mindset shifting around fear for animals. So they don't have the same ability to, you know, direct their own movements, but they can be trained just like we get trained. I mean, sometimes it's like, I, I wish I had a trainer that would just train me not to be fearful in this direction or not respond in that direction. All those things can be learned. To your question, I think that is another theme of both of my books, which is self-experimentation. Everybody, not everybody is different. Everybody has anxiety, but everybody has their particular form of anxiety and the way that they best deal with it. And the answer for you is best sought out by you through self-experimentation. Try different things out, read different books, try different meditations, try different breath meditations, try different forms of exercise or activity or social interaction that can be very rewarding and anxiety decreasing. And I guarantee you that my favorite forms of anxiety reduction will be very different from your favorite forms of anxiety reduction. So are there differences? Absolutely. Part of what I try and teach, and in fact, I'm starting to teach a a new freshman seminar class in a couple of weeks called How to Build a Big Fat Fluffy Brain. And part of what I'm going to teach these 18 NYU freshmen is how to evaluate the literature and how to test it out on yourself. See, see if it works. What is a good general experiment? Would it, how do I do an experiment on myself and determine whether it's working or not? I think that's a very powerful tool. And also to that point, so when people are implementing the different coping strategies, because you, you talk a lot in your book about different coping strategies, you talk, for example, about like situation selection and situation modification and attention deployment. This comes back to what I was talking about with how we judge things that we do. I found with me, I've had certain things in my life that have been very anxiety, very anxiety provoking. And I have come up with coping strategies that would fall under probably like situation selection and situation modification where I would go to great lengths to either change the actual situation so I didn't have to engage in it. Or if I was engaging, I would, you know, put in all the, all the things I need to do to make me be able to do it and, and not experience that incredible anxiety with it. And for those certain things like that, like that would work. Here's a concrete example. I, I have a lot of actually still have anxiety surrounding traveling and it has to do with how it affects my sleep and my digestion and like all these different things. So I will go to great lengths to, if I have to schedule a trip, I mean, great lengths to schedule where I'm staying so that I know I can do all these things that will, you know, make me feel okay physically and even like make sure I can get like a colonic for my digestion, like all of this stuff. If you're existing in that state and it's working for you, like, do you feel like that's okay? Or do people need to move beyond that where they don't need those coping strategies anymore? Well, I mean, who defines whether you need it are not anymore. If you end up constipated for five days, are you going to just be happy with that? I mean, <laughs> it, it's, yeah, no, no, I think, I think that's great. I think that to me, that sounds like, you know, identifying something that, that is 
uncomfortable and and probably unhealthy and and you know doing the work to actually get around it in in a difficult situation because that 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 is very difficult in time change situation especially if you're traveling a long way for this one it's not get over it i think other situations maybe you can modify after a while that you don't need any but you may not need it anymore but yours is a physical kind of change and need that as long as your your approaches are helping and and improve the situation then i say that great continue doing it okay yeah it's so interesting i guess cuz i guess i'm always analyzing everything and i'm a perfectionist so i'm i think well if i just had this complete mindset shift and i could just not have anxiety about travel i feel like i haven't evolved my brain enough to like not have the anxiety in the first place so i'm just really interested by coping mechanisms and the judgment of them. But then of course, in the book, you do talk about actual maladaptive coping mechanisms and how to identify that and when those are no longer working for you. So I guess that would be things like alcohol and, you know, complete social withdrawal. So yeah, so listeners will definitely have to get the book because there's a lot in there. One other question about addressing anxiety or experiencing it. You talk about the importance of experiencing your anxiety and you know, sitting with it and realizing that it's okay. If you don't have the skills in place yet to deal with it, like, can you do more damage by just experiencing anxiety if you don't know what to do with that anxiety? Is there the issue of potentially just making those anxiety pathways more ingrained by sitting with it? Yeah. If you, if you kind of focus on the negative aspects of it, I I think, you know, that part of the book was really to appreciate that that you know life is not always happy and and joyful everybody needs to be able to sit with uncomfortable emotions and in fact another kind of corollary of the book is that not just anxiety but all of those uncomfortable difficult emotions are warning signals for something that are helping us steer away from negative things or fearful things or or things that could be dangerous. It's a reframing of of what those what those feelings really are. I think yes, there is a danger if you just sit with the feeling and just sit there and say this is horrible, I hate it. Versus this is this is a warning signal and 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 kind of develop a deeper appreciation of what that might be. It's not obvious. They're not labeled you know, you have to kind of figure out what they are. And, and I've used, you know, coaches and executive coaches to help me with mine, particularly around my professional life. But of course, it all kind of melds in there. So these are social situations that are relevant for my work life are also relevant for my personal life as well. There's a lot of learning that could that could happen there. And a lot of reframing that's available. But I think everybody can benefit from learning to sit in those uncomfortable emotions and appreciate them as as warning signals and just know that they're they're always going to be there not as a doom and gloom you're you're you know relegated to this for for the rest of your life but this is part of this amazing kaleidoscope of emotions that we evolved as humans there's a beauty in that I mean that's part of the appreciation of being a neuroscientist it's just amazing to appreciate all these different senses and cognitive and emotional functions that we have. 
I love the section in the book where you talked about emotions and in particular when you talked about all the different ones and their purpose and what they were, you know, giving you. I never really thought about it that way. It was very empowering. So I definitely encourage listeners to get both of Dr. Suzuki's books. I mean, it's really doing a service that I think is needed, especially in today's super, super stressed, anxious world. Are you working on any future books? I am. I'm not talking about the final topic yet. We're just finalizing the proposal. But yes, it's it's coming. Well, at least the proposal is coming soon. It's going to take another, I don't know, year or so to, to write it up. But I'm excited. It's going to be a follow-up to the general theme of healthy brain, happy life, followed by good anxiety. And so in that same, in that same vein. Oh, awesome. Well, hopefully you can come back on the show for that because I am eager about all of your future work. Oh, thank you. I'd love to. So how can people best follow your work? Where can they check you out? Yeah, the best place to go is wendysuzuki.com. All of my information for all the books, lots of videos, my TED Talk, my classes, my work at NYU is all there in one place. So you can find out everything there. Awesome. Well, we will put links to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your work. I am just so, so appreciative. Like I said, it was a profound experience reading your book and I can't wait for listeners to check it out and congrats on being Dean. (laughs) So amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Melanie. I really appreciate it. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.